0: letter to the Hebrews, a Christian church that had come, is was made probably mostly of, of Jewish believers who had come out of the synagogue, who um, recognized the um, end of the Mosaic covenant and coming into the new covenant and worshiping Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And they were experiencing persecution because of it. And this letter was not just written to them, but to us as well. And so there is much for us to learn from these things, and so let's, um, we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 12. And we'll begin reading in, in verse 1, and we'll go through um, verse 14. So let's pray. Father God, we do thank you for your, the word, the Bible. We thank you that it comes to us um, without error, that while translations can have errors, copyists can have errors, Lord, the full counsel of God is clearly understood and seen from what we have in our very hands. So we thank you for teachers. We thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit. We pray now that you would illumine our hearts to these things, that you would use this message today to make us more like Jesus Christ, and that we would leave from here um, encouraged and encouraging, and that we would long for um, Christlikeness and holiness. And we pray this in Christ's name, amen. So again, Hebrews chapter 12, beginning in verse one, the word of the Lord. Therefore, we are surrounded, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, Do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in all which For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble and by it many become defiled. So let's pray once more. Father God, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would now be with the preaching and the hearing of your word and that we would all be blessed by it. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So again, as we said toward the beginning, here we are in a new year and we look at and you everybody, 2020 will always be remembered, um, you know, for, for what it was. I know that um, I was going to give away our password on our, i change our password because it says, I can't tell you what our password is. But it was rather optimistic about the coming year. Let's just say that back in ni- 1999, back in 2019 when um, um, the password was entered in and we were all talking about um, 2020 as a vision. 2020 is going to be our year of vision. 2020 is going to be, this is going to be, you know, it's like, and then all this happens. And um, the only reason we would talk like that is because we didn't realize that this is about vision. This is about what God is doing. God is at work through everything that is happening in 2020. And we have to recognize, too, that how does the church view and respond to all these different things. Not just 2020 stuff, but stuff that always happens, always anyway. We live in a cursed world, we live in a fallen world, there's always death, there's always problems, there are always um, lots of things that we would call trials and tribulations, but we have to recognize that God is still in control. But we look around and things are getting harder and things are somewhat harder in different areas for, for everybody. And harder for the church. Our numbers are dwindling, and I'm not just talking about Second Street, whose numbers may go up or down, but the church in the world, particularly at least in this country, the numbers for Christians are are dwindling, um, at least for people who have reported to be Christians. So, you know, many of you too are going through personal hardships. And many of you are called to take steps of obedience to God's revealed will that 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 um, some of you are resisting, and then some people may be suffering because of it. That God's calling us to some sort of or you to some sort of obedience, and you just you don't want to do it, or you are doing it, and therefore you're reaping um, certain you know the, the results of those decisions. But all the time believing it is within God's revealed will to us, and we're all under an added strain. But what's also being revealed in all of this is our weaknesses. Um, The word that's been one of the phrases or words that's been coined, it wasn't coined, but everybody knows it now, is comorbidities. You know, morbid, morte, death, you know, comorbidities, things. It's not just the virus that gets you. It's all this underlying stuff we have problems with. And so one of the things we see is our country is um, ill-prepared for um, illnesses that come because we're in such ill health to begin with. And so the the older you are or the less good health you're in, then these things come upon you and those weaknesses are um, are brought uh, to the forefront. And so some people are more susceptible to the virus than others, and the same is true in the church. And it's not talking about the virus, but things that come into the church that come against you, the more comorbidities you have, the the weaker you are when a trial comes upon you, when a storm comes forward then the more likely you are to be swept off of your feet at the, you know, some people it doesn't take much, a mild wind comes and and they're gone and some people are planted more firmly but things keep happening and keep happening and finally they're down and so you know those weaknesses in our lives become more apparent um, in the midst of storms. And so the same thing with a building or anything, we're not sure if our roof is leaking but we had to wait until it rains We have pictures of these stains, I think we're okay, but you know, (laughs) if it never rained, we wouldn't worry about whether our roof leaked or not. But we would never, know. there you get the analogy, I'll stop at that point. But things that come into our lives can show us how we're susceptible to different storms or attacks of Satan, even. So others endure longer and some are gone quickly, but. The Bible says, as he's talking to Hebrews earlier, we believe better things about you. you. You are not of those who give up and have no hope. You are not of those who fall away. Because the problem with the church that he's talking to in Hebrews is that there are people who were thinking about being going away, falling away. So as we've read in this chapter, in this section, we see that it really is about Resistance. It really is about things coming against you and how are you going to stand against it. So really, if you are a note-taker and you want to take first point, it's um, discipline proves that he's our father or that Christian chastisement proves our paternal relationship, if you like bigger words. Uh, but that's, that's one of the points, that the discipline of the things that happen in the life of the Christian to, and we'll talk about what that means in just a minute, but one of the points that he makes here is if you're a child, you're going to be disciplined. It sort of proves your relationship. And even when we look at chapter 12 and you look at um, the middle part of, of 5 and 6, um, in my Bible they have this little section, kind of paragraphed and off a little bit because it's a quote from Proverbs chapter 3, 11 and 12. It's reminding these Jewish believers, and by the way, understand this so that you can counter some of the world's charges against the church. Um, and Francis Schaefer wrote a book by this title. Um, Christianity is Jewish. Okay? Christianity is Jewish. The founder was Jewish. It comes out of um, Jewish covenants. It's all, the Abrahamic covenant is what we're currently under as a church even, in the new covenant. So don't ever let someone accuse the church of being anti-Jewish in any way because that would be ridiculous because our founder is Jewish. The, the Nazi regime recognized that as they eventually had churches remove Old Testaments from their Bibles because that was the Hebrew Bible. Uh, what they failed to realize was if they'd studied that Bible more, that um, there's a whole bunch of the Old Testament in the New Testament. And so without the, New Test- without the New Testament, you can't even really understand what the Old Testament is teaching. You can't really understand the New Testament without the Old Testament. So try as they might, the Nazis could not make Christianity not a Jewish religion, because it it very much is. And so what the author here does is drive you back to the Old Testament. And say, you remember in Proverbs where it says this, my son, don't regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him because he disciplines the one he loves and he chastises every son whom he receives. And so he is saying, believer, you are sons. Now I know some of you here are women. That's all right. Covenantally, you are sons because the sons are the ones that inherit the promises. And so now there's neither male nor female in this sense in that we're all equal and co-heirs in Christ. So when you hear the Bible talking about sons, um, a lot of times, oftentimes, it is talking about all believers. The position we stand in covenantally under God. And so that's very important too. But we have... God as our Father and so when hard things happen in our lives it is not merely an indication it is not necessarily an indication that we're not children of God the enemy whoever it may be the world flesh Satan demons may say you know um, you are no child of God just look at your circumstances obviously you're not a child of God the condition that you find yourself in, with it being like this, you cannot be an object of his favor. You deceive yourself. If God was your father and you were God's child, he would treat you very differently than this. You would not go through hard times. But then the answer that we have, just as when Satan tempted Jesus should be scriptural, and the answer would be, you know, it is written, whoever the Lord loves, he disciplines. It doesn't mean he's not my father. It doesn't mean I'm not his son. Actually, if you don't receive discipline, you kind of need to maybe wonder whether God's your, your um, father at all. If he just lets you go and do whatever it is that you think you would like to do and- and be whoever you think. And so we see people who don't have any kind of problems at all, and even in the Psalms, they see that, and they say, you know, I was jealous of them. Is it Psalm 51 or 73? You know, I, I was envied the arrogant. They didn't have the troubles that I have. But then I considered their end, that they, you've put their feet in slippery places. And so we have to have this perspective. So going through hard and difficult things does not necessarily mean that you are not a child of God. It can very well be an indication that he is your father. So whenever you see these trials and tribulations that you as a believer or the church goes through, recognize the fact that especially in Hebrews here, we're told whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. Now this word discipline, here's the, and it's translated differently in different English translations is where we get the word pedagogy from. So if you're a teacher, you study pedagogy, pace or pedos is a child, and uh, Agagas is leader, so a child leader is what we're talking about here. So discipline, um, a good definition for this word is to teach as one would a child. Now our word discipline in English might have a little different connotations, but the Greek word under this means to teach as one would a child. Um, Instruction aimed at creating virtue. Virtue means true, proper, godly behavior often with the idea of reproof, correction, or punishment. So that's the word. We hear discipline, and a lot of times we think you know, punishment. But it means to be made a disciple of. But the Greek word is actually um, teaching as a child, teaching someone who is a child. There can be evidence... Um, Well, Hebrews writes this to remind us that trials do not mean that we're not his children, that they can be evidence of the fact that we are, because we are loved by God. God does not allow us to behave in destructive ways without calling us back. And so these things do happen in the life of a believer. And he tells us, too, as we're going through these things, one of the first things he wants us to do is, in verse 3, consider also Christ, who endured from sinners such hostility against himself. So they were going through trials and tribulations that happened to be based on other uh, sinners, people who were in the, the synagogues that were Jewish, too, but they rejected Christ. They were worshiping in a false religion and had cast out those who had turned to Christ. And they were losing property. They were being treated in all kinds of terrible ways. And he said, well, you know, so was Jesus Christ. So as we're going through problems and trials and tribulations, the Bible tells us, remember Jesus Christ, who also suffered and suffered on our behalf. And he was even abandoned by God on the cross. But during his blessed life, it also tells us he needed endurance too. He needed a relationship with the Father, he needed these things, and he was suffering for us, and so it had infinitely more value, but we are called to follow our leader, and as he suffered, so too should we, in the way he's able to even say from the cross, as the first Christian martyr was able to say, Father, forgive them, they know not what they do. And he says, you've not yet resisted unto blood. He's talking about death, but they may yet do so. That Jesus did resist to that point. And so we're called to resist until our last breath, resist giving up. The Hebrews were, the sin that they were particularly striving against is called apostasy. That they were thinking of leaving the faith, leaving the church. So we have to say, all right, if a lot of this stuff that's going on in our world is indeed, does indeed have to do with. Um, chastisement, discipline in the church, um, what's he teaching us? What would be sins that we need to examine ourselves for and say, all right, what what do we need to learn from, from this? And I think um, if you look around, and particularly just within our church culture in this country, and I can't even speak for kind of in our country because you see this all over the news, all over the people who broadcast worship services or broadcast messages and things, Um, regardless of what the world may think of itself as it worships God and calls itself Christian and calls itself the church, I think the greatest sin that we deal with as Christians is uh, lukewarmness. And the revelation says, I wish that you were either hot or cold, but as it is, you're lukewarm, and I'll spew you out of my mouth. So this lukewarmness of believers, it's worse than being cold because it fools other people Um, and it can fool yourself that your faith is a true and living faith. So we have to say, well, what's wrong with the church in America? What's wrong? How do we maybe participate in this too? And too many so-called Christians who are at best cool in their faith and at worst they're false believers. They believe they have faith but a tree is known by its fruits. And so we have to see what has been the fruit of the church. And I believe sincerely that too much of the American church is dead. And when I say the American church, the only reason I say Americans is this is where I live and this is what I know most about. And I know there are parts of the church in other parts of the world that are thriving, like in China. Don't forget, whenever somebody says, "Oh, it's Main China," or they have something bad to say about China, or something bad, there are believers being persecuted in China and are deepening their faith in greater levels than we could possibly imagine. And if God were to so bless us one day, maybe the church here will be persecuted that much, and then we will find out what it truly means to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. So be in prayer for them, and not just in China, but in other parts of the world too, where becoming a Christian can really be a great, great problem but too much of the American church is dead and they feel alive and that is a great problem and what makes how could somebody who's not even a Christian worship in a church and feel alive because of worship um, and it can be because of several things it can be the music it doesn't have to be any particular kind of music it can be we sing hymns okay that means you're a Christian we sing um, more exuberant music that means we're, you know, but whatever it is you sing or however it is your style of worship is, it, it gives me a good feeling. And therefore, I must be a believer and I must be doing right and good because um, so much of the church is based on emotions and feelings. Um, so maybe there are people in the church that are believers, but their um, commitment to the church is, is, is also significant. But what about their commitment to Christ? is a lot of people are committed to the church without being committed to Christ. And you would think, well, that's contradiction in terms. It is a contradiction in terms, but it's very easy not to have a relationship with Jesus, but to have a relationship with the church. And it causes lots of problems um, when those people um, become numerous, when they uh, maybe are good givers or servers, or they are very vocal. Then what happens, how do leaders deal with this sort of thing? And um, that's what happens. You just begin to sort of desire unity and peace over truth, and then you get all sorts of, of problems. Because we have a lot of people who are, say they're committed to Christ, too, but then they deny him by their lifestyles. So we have to let that not be said of us. We have to examine and say, what are our functional gods? The gods that we really believe and the gods that we really depend on for our comfort and peace. So we have to look out for these things. Now last time I had a, I simply had it turned over this time, so I don't know where I am, thank you. Functional guides. What are our functional guides? The guides that we say we believe one thing, but we actually kind of believe something else. It's like, okay, it can be the government. And if your functional guide is the government, you will see it because this is what causes you the most anxiety, is what causes you the most exuberance, is what causes you to be the most active is any conversation that has to do with government. How happy you are about it or how mad you are about it, but if we're going to talk about something and I'm going to get very upset about it or I'm going to be very exuberant about it or I feel like if the wrong people get in government, it's done. Those stimulus checks you're angry there wasn't more. And I love Rand Paul. We'll look up Rand Paul's little uh, thing on this. Is why 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 six hundred? Why not two thousand? Why not hundred thousand? Why not a million? These, these just it's just digital stuff now. I, I didn't get anybody get 600, six hundred six one hundred dollar bills handed to them. I mean maybe you did. I just got a notification that we have twelve hundred dollars in our account. There it is. You know. So how do you feel about that? government and money can be a functional guide. The love of money uh, maybe you would say oh, I don't love money well call it the fear of money then fear of losing it um, is the root of all kinds of evils so you have to be careful with that money is a heck of a thing maybe it's your family, you have to be careful with that too, your family falls apart what happens to you because it's your functional guide it can be your job, you lose your job what happens to you, it can be a functional guide your children, they abandon you they turn on you, they don't love you functional guides, your husband, your boyfriend, your girlfriend, your wife, God says he's a jealous guide. Jealous. We think well, it's terrible. You can't be jealous. Well, the way we do it, it's not good, but there's a certain amount of jealousy that if you don't have over your wife or your spouse, it's kind of bad, you know, in a good way. But God is jealous for us because if we go after other gods, it is bad for us. And so he treats us and calls us back to himself and um, we're told in his commandments that we need to fear that. We run around with so many other gods that Sodom and Gomorrah would rise up against us in the judgment. Say, Why would we go through so much? Look at them. Even within the church sometimes. So we see a global virus. We see an increasingly authoritarian government. We see an increase in cultural godlessness. We see a decrease in church attendance. We see health problems, financial problems, family problems, Christians who cling to their money and their pews as if God was not um, blessing us to serve. It appears as if maybe God has had enough of us. So what we have to cling to is the fact that he loves us. Point two, Christian chastisements flow from God's love, not his wrath. Divine chastisements, if you want to call it, chastisements from God to his children flow from God's love, not God's wrath. So you have to keep that in mind whenever you're going through these things. There was a, um, A. A.W. Pink talks about this in, in his very thick commentary on the book of, Hebrews, he talks about a a Quaker and a preacher who were riding together, and they were coming up to the Quaker's farm, and the Quaker had a weather vane, and on it it says, God is love, and it's a weather vane, so you know, it turns wherever the wind blows, and the preacher said, I don't like it, (laughs) Quaker preachers are blunt, I guess, you know, it's like, I don't like it, he said, God's love doesn't change like the weather And the Quaker said, "Eh, you missed the point. That text reminds me that no matter which way the wind is blowing and no matter from which direction the storm may come, God still is love. And then A.W. Pink has this little line. I think it was from him. He says, God dries up cisterns, wells, in order that we may seek the fountain. So you have these things that you've accumulated to yourself for, you know, personal, make yourself feel good about things. He'll dry that up. You'll crack it, smash it, dry it up so that you'll seek the fountain of living waters. But you're standing there over a cistern, a well that you have nurtured, got comfort from. And then something happens to it, and so you have a reaction. God doesn't love me, (laughs) or these different things. But you have to remember that these things that happen to a Christian, to a believer, are not out of his wrath, but out of his love. Jesus Christ loves his church. He gave his life for the church. The question is, are you a believer? Are you truly a member of of his church because he is working to present to himself a bride without spot or blemish. He gave himself up for her to present to the church to present to himself a bride without spot or blemish. That's what he did. So he loves us. So believer, born again, Christ follower, servant, brother, sister, fathers, mothers, if you have grown lukewarm, if we have wandered and have squandered our inheritance and squandered, squandered it on petty comforts and prostitutes, We have to know that because God loves us, he will act to drive us to the end of ourselves. Just as the prodigal son realized he was eating with the pigs. You can't be a son. God wouldn't allow you to eat with the pigs. You obviously are a son. No, because that guy was a son, God allowed him to eat with the pigs and come to the end of him to return. And then the father is scanning the horizons. He sees him and the father runs to the son. But if it wasn't for the chastisement, for the discipline, the teaching that was happening to the son as he took his inheritance and ran and squandered it, that's what caused him to return. The elder brother, on the other hand, who doesn't seem to be a son at all, even though he's there by birth, um, just wants the father's stuff too. And he's being very good to keep it, keeping the rules but it's very angry when the father starts to spend things on the other one because that's his stuff. That son already took his stuff. You're taking my stuff now because the fa- they both were in love with the father's stuff. One son took it and ran and realized I need the father. And the other son was like, I'm not an idiot. I'm going to sit here and be good and get the father's stuff. Neither son loved the father, but the father loved that son and brought him back. And then he looks at the other son and he says, Have I not been with you always? And will I not share with you all things? Everything I have is yours. This son of yours, that this son of mine, this brother of yours that was dead is now alive. And that's what God does in this discipline of us. This is what he's trying to produce within us, is to recognize this truth about how he loves us, so that if we have grown lukewarm and squandered our inheritance. We pray that God would do something, whatever it takes, to return us to himself. And I think, I hope, that is what I think he's doing to us. I really sincerely believe that that is what he's doing to us. I know it's what he's doing to me. So, woe to the man whom God chastises not. And woe to the man who does not heed it. If we are sons, we will be brought to repentance and godly sorrow where there will be the restoration of peace with God. God does see sin even in his children. Some people teach that he doesn't. He does, obviously. This passage is good Teaching about that, but if we're sons, we will be brought to this repentance, and He will chastise us for those sins that He does see within us. Out of His, the Westminster Confession says, God does sometimes deal with us in His fatherly displeasure, and so that's an interesting idea: is having a fatherly displeasure. Doesn't mean he's not a father. Doesn't mean he does not love us. That means he's not doing something for our good. If you do not discipline your children, it is terrible for your children. The problem a lot of parents have with the discipline of their children is they discipline out of wrath and not out of love and they don't know how to it's difficult for us. And the Bible even addresses it. You earthly fathers who just trying to figure it out. But we're limited. And we make mistakes. But the father of spirits, the father of Yeah, he's giving you faith. He disciplines everything that happens for our good. All things work together for the good of those who love God and call according to his purposes. Everything. The virus, all of 2020, all of 21, every year in the past was under his control. As many years as will continue, as long as there are years will be under his control. And when we see difficulties happening, we have to remember if you're his child... These things aren't happening out of his wrath, they're happening out of his love for us. Because we're being saved not by our godly behavior, we're being saved in spite of our ungodly behavior, but we are saved unto good works. There's a place for the believer to actually live out the things that he believes or she believes. Because we're saved in spite of this ungodly behavior. But we're saved unto good works to shine as children of God, as Philippians says, amongst a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. But not every suffering of believers in this world is a divine rebuke for personal transgression. There's quite a sentence. <laughs> okay. Not everything that's happening to you, not every bad thing that happens to a believer is there because God is disciplining you. It's there because, well, you got a problem. You know, my car broke down you know, five times. God must, I must have done something wrong, and got, or better yet, oh, you must have done something wrong. You know, the whole book of Job is kind of about this. You know, you, you wouldn't have anything bad happening to you if you haven't done something to deserve it. And Job's like, uh, d- d- no. And God tells us beforehand, nope, Job's right. Then the problem with Job gets to be where he begins to question God um, for being so unrighteous with him, and then God puts him in his place and says, Basically, man, I'm God. You don't get that, and that's what you're learning as I'm using you to teach my church for centuries to come. So we have to be aware, though, that not every suffering of believers in this world or because God is rebuking you for some personal sin or else every time you see a suffering Christian, you'll be tempted to jump to the conclusion that God is visiting his displeasure on that person. But some of the most faithful and devout believers in the world have gone through terrible things. Jesus Christ himself went through terrible things. And the world saw it. The religious bodies saw that as an indication at times that maybe he's not who he says he is. Because if you're a believer, you should only prosper all the time. And that's not what the Bible teaches us. When God is chastising a person for his sins, it's easy for that person to suppose that that's not the case too. So you have two kinds of people. Um, The type of people who just say, you know, this is... This is not God chastising me, and, you know, Get. we'll talk about it in a, in a minute, though. But there are people who, when God is chastising them for their sins, it's easy to say, no, it's not the case. And they'll be falsely comforted um, with the fact that they believe that God is love, and therefore he always only blesses with peace, and any hardships that I'm going through aren't my fault. God must be teaching somebody else something in this situation. You, know, you can divert it from yourself. Um, It's always better and safest for us to assume that God has an issue with us. You're going through something. The safest thing to do is, okay, is God teaching me a lesson? You know, am I being chastised for something? Is the church, are we going through this for some reason? Is there something? Because there's always something to learn. But just don't always fall into the the belief that anything bad that happens, happens because you have a problem. Um, If God treated us as our sin deserves, we'd have nothing but that we'd have no blessing. So the question is, why are you giving me this blessing? Why are these good things happen to me at all? That's the thing that should astound us. But we are supposed to look at ourselves in every issue and say, okay, how can I humble myself under the mighty hand of God better? But where other people are concerned, it's not for us to judge. You're going through this because God, you don't know. Get your own house in order. And you are there to help and encourage. And if you see someone in sin, you mention it, you talk about it, but don't assume because somebody's going through trouble that they've got something to learn. But when you're going through something, you need to assume, I have something to learn. This is an introspective way of God that is dealing with our people. And then there's ways that God deals with all the time. But we have to have faith. It's the invisible hand of providence, it's been called, that's at work in all things. And since we're being disciplined as children by our perfect loving Heavenly Father, then we have to see the difference between divine punishment and divine chastisement or divine um, discipline. God's people will never be punished for their sins. You will never be punished for your sins. God has already punished your sins on the cross. We don't have God as a judge, we have God as a father. We don't have God, we're not enemies with God, we are the children of God. God is not giving us um, retributive justice. He's not paying us back for bad things we've done. He is training us and teaching us and trying to make us see where we fall short. And this little section that is the quote of Proverbs chapter 3, don't regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary. There's two different ways of responding to it. One is you can regard it lightly. Yeah, it's no big deal. And another word for that, too, though, is disdain. To despise it, to show contempt for it, to blow it off and ignore it. So it's not just that it's no big deal, but you refuse to acknowledge there's even any difficulty. There's not a problem here. Nothing to be seen here. You know, I got thick skin. I can't deal. None of this is a problem to me. And that's one problem. So you don't learn from it. And another is dismay to be completely overwhelmed by it. So God's discipline for his children never involves wrath. But for the purpose of training and education, it's there. Hardships result in two possibilities for God's children: they either distract us from Christ, or they intensify our focus on Christ. And so that's what we had to be careful of. You either get distracted, focused on the problems. Peter walking on the water, of the storm. Uh, he walks on the water. He sees the storm. Oh, you have a little faith. Why do you doubt? So that's what we do. We take our eyes off Jesus because we're distracted by these great problems that we can run into. And then in 12, first part of verse 11, we see it says, for the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. Now, the word seems is interesting there. It could easily, and most i of writing it, I would say discipline is difficult at the time. That um, all discipline is painful rather than pleasant. He says seems that way. Which, you know, what's the word seems, seems to be there um, because afflictions are not necessarily what they seem to be. For the Christian, they are not there for your injury, they're there for your profit but we're so often too selfish or fond of our ease and comfort our cisterns that we've gathered for ourselves that can't even hold water so that our spiritual vision becomes blurred because we've focused on the wrong things and our situations seem so desperate and grievous because we do not see them through eyes of faith because we don't think of eternity enough. We only think of now. We only think of what's right in front of us. That was a third point, by the way. Discipline seems painful at the time. But fourth is discipline as a purpose. It should produce fruit. So it should be fruit. So if we're going, if the church is going through discipline at this point, through um, pedagogues, if we're being taught something through hardship at this time, then um, it should produce some fruit. And that's the good news, that whatever the church, whatever believers may go through, it doesn't mean The virus is happening just for the church, but it is happening primarily for the church. And another part of it is to help awaken non-believers to their need of Christ or either condemn them further in the hardness of their sin because so much was thrown at them to say, look at the frailty of life. You are not in control of this. So what's the fruit of godly discipline? And it's righteousness. Now, I think what the church would like to say today is the, what is the result of discipline? Peace, ease, but it's not, it's righteousness. We'll get that peace part in a second, but don't pass over the righteousness part. The Bible in the Old Testament particularly is full of the righteous and the wicked. The righteous and the wicked. The righteous man, um, it would say the wicked runs when there's nobody pursuing them, but the righteous man has peace. Now that's not just talking about positional righteousness in Christ, that's talking about actual physical righteousness, uh, a breastplate of righteousness. Now we're righteous in Christ, yes, but as believers, as children of God, we can behave in very unrighteous ways and you're opening yourself up for attack. And I've been asked more than once in the past little bit of time, why does God care about this behavior or that behavior or that behavior? Why does he care about it? Because he cares about you. And we think it's only because he cares about him and his holiness. No, he knows that one, without faith, it's impossible to please him and that your faith is what connects you to God and gets you to heaven and it's more valuable than gold or silver or any such thing. He loves us so much he wants our faith to be strengthened. And so if you will not cling to him, he will allow you to fall down deeply into places where the darkness is so dark, where the fear is so fearful, where the pain is so painful that you have no choice but to cry out to him. There's people that go into war. C.S. Lewis talks about it. He says a lot of people turn to God sincerely when they're going into war because they recognize they could die at any moment. But others turn to him in a, in a foxhole because they're just so afraid they have to cry out to something because they know that nothing worldly can save them. And sometimes that's true faith and sometimes it's not. But for the believer, sometimes that's what it takes for the believer to finally realize that they have nothing else to hold on to and there's only God left. The worst thing that the church can do is help that person survive. It's like there's a drug addict and he's trying to quit drugs but he's suffering, so we're gonna alleviate the suffering by giving him more drugs. No, that's not how that works. And so wisdom dictates how these things happen. But God knows perfectly what to take from you for your good. He even knows what to allow you to have for your good. And um, Amy has a, uh, well, the fruit is righteousness. And what does it say here in, verse, in the second part of verse 11? It is a peaceful fruit. Peace is not the fruit. Righteousness and righteousness results in Peace. Now, you might say, well, I'm, you know, I can be righteous and I don't have peace. Well, you don't understand what peace really is. Peace, shalom, harmony, uh, things working as they should within your spirit, even as you're seeing hard things come to you. But as God's discipline works on the church, it should result in righteousness. And unrighteousness within the church is something that really hurts weak believers. Um, Gossip in the church really hurts weak believers. It hurts everybody, but particularly weak believers who've been damaged by sin in the church, and therefore they don't want to go to church anymore. Now, it's a sin for them to think that way, but it is difficult. And so what we have the obligation to do, one, is to make sure that we, as far as it goes with us, that we are practicing righteousness. Pastors, leaders who um, commit adultery, who um, get caught stealing, that's why well, I'm in church. I'm glad we are in church and don't have any money. I'm not tempted to steal a little bit of money we have. And how do people come up? Anyway, Ryan and I have had this conversation before where usually when somebody's stealing something from a large organization, it's like two of them get together and do it. And I'm like, how does that conversation begin, Ryan? He says, I don't know, John. How do you think it begins? <laughs> so we have set up certain things where if we try to steal money, it will become immediately apparent. So that would destroy a church. And it's not just bad for leaders to do it. It's bad for any believer not to try to live righteous and holy lives. You should. It sounds legalistic. And I'm talking about legalism. You're not saved that way. But come on. If you're repenting of your sin, you got the Holy Spirit working within you. I know sin. If you're a believer, sin should bother you. Your personal sin should bother you. And so God will discipline you to help you feel that sin in some way. Whatever. we're to to grow in this, and it'll be a peaceful fruit, and it's helpful for other believers and for the, the image of Christ. But um, as I started to say, Amy has a, there's a little sign over uh, one of our thresholds in the house, a doorway, it's Isaiah 32:17, and it says, The effect of righteousness will be peace. The effect of righteousness will be peace. And the result of righteousness is quietness and trust forever. That's the result of righteousness. So we should be training our children for virtue, for righteousness. We should be training ourselves for virtue, for righteousness. And then we see what comes next in verse 12. Therefore, lift your drooping hands. Now in the, uh, the Greek, there's no word your there. The ESV adds it. I guess they think they're trying to be helpful. King James says, lift up the hands that hang down. Um, Strengthen the hands that are weak is how the NAS says it, but that literal lift up the hands that hang down. So you know what that's like, you know, especially in a boxer, you know, you see these boxers and the the hands start to drop. That's it. Football teams, they always say, oh, they got the hands on the hips. (laughs) Yeah, you see them walking around like this. It's like, oh, they're tired. You can get them now. So lift up weak hands. But it's also, without that your being in there, it's a double thing. It's like, lift up your hands. Don't, you know, this is, All this is supposed to be a reminder that any hardship that you're going through, you're children of God. He loves you. You're not dealing with his wrath. So let's get with it. But it also, since it's not your, it means encourage one another all the more you see a day approaching. Lift, you see whose hands are weak, lift them up help them as you're also helping yourself. Strengthen weak knees. And that word yours is not there Strengthen weak knees. And if you're older, you know what weak knees are. Strengthen these things. Make straight paths for your feet. (laughs) Pursue righteousness. Try to do good. Do what's right. Do what God would have us to do. So that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather healed. Pursuing righteousness. Trying to do what's right. Trying to do what's good. And then strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. So as we're going through this, you know, lifting up drooping hands, don't play the victim, don't wallow in resentment, um, look to the hope of ultimate victory, help one another, encourage one another, uh, make straight paths, be an example. Again, it can be... um, inconsistencies in God's people spreads, you know, hypocrites in the church people talk about it and it's very difficult for people but seeing sin in a a leader and it becomes public it can very well be God is disciplining that person who's a child of his and he's bringing him back so don't give up on the church because you see sinners being sinners don't give up on the church because you see godly leaders fall understand that God is at work and keep an eye on yourself. But holiness, Christ-likeness is what we're talking about. Jesus showed what holiness should look like in a man, kind, loving, gentle. He stood up for God. He stood up for his word. He stood up for people. He fought off wolves. He chastised the shepherds who didn't care for the people. But if you're not walking in the spirit, you won't see it. But too often in the church, we seek relationship and community, but not holiness. Holiness christ and the fruit of that is peace. I want to close with um, a couple of Bible, verse, Bible verses. Um, 2 Timothy three, sixteen and 17. All Scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training. That's our word, discipline. Okay, Scripture is good for this. In doing, disciplining us in what? Righteousness that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. You've got to be in the word. You're disciplined by the reading of the word. And in Titus 2, 11 through 13, the grace of God has appeared. The grace of God has appeared. It salvation to all people, training us. as our word again, pedagogos. It is disciplining us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. Let's pray. Father God, um, We turn these things into rules and regulations and we become judgmental when other people don't follow them properly. Help us to focus on ourselves, but help us to see when there's difficulty, there's something for us to learn. No matter what we're going through as the church, it's meant for our good. So help us to learn from it. Help us to be healed. Help us to be lifters of drooping hands. Help us to help strengthen weak knees and help us to get on with it. Help us not to focus on the problems. Help us to focus on the fact that you love us and that you are strengthening our faith. So, Lord, I pray our, our faith to be strengthened, that you continue to teach us these things as a good Heavenly Father. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.